Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and for this special Christmas episode, we're going to be taking a look at the wild year in Westminster and the 10 insane moments that define British politics in 2022. To try and make sense of a year unlike any other, I'm joined by two top Politics Home colleagues, political reporter Eleanor Langford and our editor, Laura Silver, making her podcast debut. And I'm delighted to say we're also joined by James Heal, diary editor of The Spectator and a Liz Trust biographer. Uh, so we're going to start with the first moment. Let's go back to January, if anyone can remember that. And Partygate was in full swing and the suitcase of wine. Um, Ellie, the suitcase of wine was this amazing idea This that, that people in number 10 were going out and collecting supplies of wine for this special wine fridge that they'd bought, apparently, in the number 10 press office, uh, which no longer exists, apparently, or is just full of soft drinks now, I think, uh, is, 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 the, is the rule. Uh, what, do you, what, do you, what are your memories of, of, that, uh, of that time, really? Well, I can remember that it was just... Everyone just responded with absolute ridicule because it's yeah. absolutely ridiculous to be going to fill a suitcase with wine, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Um, we were just saying before this about, was it the Heart Radio presenters yeah. trying to run from their Leicester Square studio to the Strand Co-op where they bought the wine and back uh, laden with wine to see how quickly they could do it. Yeah. I think... That's when you know you're in trouble, I think, when you've got the Heart, when Heart FM go against you. Do we yeah. know what wine they had? Mm, which, that is a good which question. Which of finest? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did, did they go own brand or did they go... I seem to remember when the above. final Sue Grey report came out and there was blurred... Fo- there was some Castello del Diablo, I think, was in there, I think. Okay, so... That, Honestly, Bellingcat had nothing on Westminster's finest. They were all over <laughs> identifying yeah. open access, you know, journalism like that. Yeah, Within yeah, five yeah, minutes, yeah, yeah. I put a tweet up and someone had identified the exact bottle and cost. Yes, at the co-op. Very strand. familiar bottle of prosecco. About seven <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah, that was very obvious, wasn't it? And that, you know, on a serious note, that was kind of the when it was really started to get serious for the government. That was when they'd launched the 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 first investigation, Simon Case, who then hilariously had to stand down because he himself was implicated in parties. And Sue Gray was first uh, came on the scene as as this sort of uh, investigative figure, this gnomic presence. Um, and obviously, you know, Boris Johnson had to apologise to the House of Commons after he admitted that he'd been to this BYOB event. Uh, James, that was one of my favourite ones, was that going through those emails of people that bring your own booze. I mean, it was hard then for the government to really suggest there hadn't been partying when you've literally got booze in the name of the email. Yes, and it was Martin Reynolds who sent that, who quickly earned the nickname Party Mark. Party, Party Marty, yeah. Um, and I think it just showed just there were so many different events. That was the thing. I remember trying struggling to keep track of it or keeping a running tally on online. And there were just there were stories popping up every other day, it seemed. Um, and and also, you know, obviously Pippa Career and Paul Brand did great work, but other uh, journalists too, you know, Tony Diver, The Telegraph, the, these stories were coming up everywhere, really. Mm. I think we got down to about 14 events and there was an outcry when I think when the Met would only agree to probe 10 of them or thereabouts. Um, so it really was the scale and, um, you know, just the, the, the government's insistence that nothing had no rules be broken at any time just didn't hold as a line yeah. did it Maybe no it yeah and then they had to apologize that, that tony diver story which was the one about the, the suitcase of wine was the parties on the eve of prince philip's funeral uh, and laura that i think kind of that was the point at which i think a lot of people turned from it being oh this sort of frivolous story to being actually that's where people really started to care that the difference between how people acted in number 10 and how people were acting in the rest of the country i think so and uh, most of the original party gate stuff had come from the mirror and the guardian and i think the government had probably tried to suggest that they were hostile papers and that yeah, it could yeah. go away. And then when you get someone like the Telegraph, and not only the Telegraph, you've like wronged the Queen. Right. It yeah, was yeah, like, yeah, this yeah. is absolutely <laughs> not going away. And I think, you know, the beginning of 2022, there was this sense of like, what fresh hell is this year going to bring? And then Partygate was not something in the past. It was not something that was going to go away. It snowballed and it snowballed. And 
I don't think it helped that people were home and bored in January yeah. still. Because... It was that contrast of images, wasn't it, of the Queen has, by herself with the mask on yeah. in Westminster Abbey and knowing that at that point, at exactly the same time, people were literally spilling out of the back door of Downing Street having had this wild night. You know, there was, we later found out there'd been had someone thrown up on a copy machine the broken children's swing the broken the children's swing they broke will street they broke will swing set yeah exactly it's um uh, and obviously at the end of the month we we had the first element of the sue gray report which obviously was kind of stymied because it was only uh, the met inquiry meant that they couldn't publish all of it uh, but we got my favorite one of my favorite quotes of the year from connor burns who said that um the prime minister was ambushed by a cake I, um, I remember very vividly. I think you might have been there as well. I was, yes. It was outside the red line. We were outside the red um, line. A member of Connor's staff was there. And I think he had about 10 journalists come up to him and mock him to his face. <laughs> yeah. And believe me, he wasn't drinking before. He was necking those pints Yeah, it, it was, he was running back, back and forth on the phone all evening trying to respond, explain what Connor Burns I think we almost at about... one point went to Tesco and bought him a cake. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That. I think actually it's a, it's a recurring theme. We'll come back to actually that some of the people who are the Boris Johnson's strongest supporters and advocates tended to not really be very helpful. I mean, the, 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 the Ralph <laughs> yeah. Wiggum, I'm helping meme, was used more this year, I think, than, in, than almost any other about Johnson. And Connor Burns, one of his staunchest supporters, and in the end, made him look a, a bit more foolish there, really. I think that's one of the reasons the Queen picture was so significant, though, that a lot of the party cake stuff was ludicrous, and it was, you know, a fun saga on Westminster Twitter where you've got lines like ambushed by cake and a suitcase of booze. And, it, you know, it's, it was ludicrous. Yeah. And I think the general public probably were starting to think, okay, this is silly, but then you get, you know, this very powerful, sad picture of the monarch that just sums it all up. And it's like, no, this is why this is a really significant story. Of course. Yeah. And of course, we were still living, just uh, there was a whole debate this time last year, Christmas, December 2021, about having another lockdown. Yeah. So we, the, the, the shadow of COVID was still cast over a lot of the country. And I think, as you say, it looks ridiculous now, but the rules were, have had to be ridiculous because mm. of how we were dealing with the virus. And um, so the, the pure farce of it was something, but also there was a kind of serious edge to that. And people, you know, have suffered as we saw with the image of the Queen. That idea of having uh, something that's farcical with a serious edge, I think it's probably going to be a theme of a lot of the things we're talking about <laughs> this year. And, and number two is Neil Parrish uh, standing down for watching pornography in the House of Commons became known as, as Tractor Gate. I'm going to read you another, another quote, one of my favourite quotes of the year. He said, funnily enough, it was tractors I was looking at, so I did get into another website with sort of a very similar name, and I watched it for a bit, which I shouldn't have done. Uh, James, what, what was your recollections well, of, I, of I don't this? Know, I don't know how long he was watching before he realised, wait a minute, you know, that was a combine harvester, you know. Um, it was, I think, it, I think it, it just came at a point where there was a real debate around standards and that's a reoccurring theme. Of yeah. course, at that time, it was only a few months after they were in Patterson Row, which was about some money and this was about, you know, sex of a, of a kind, really. And I think it showed also that whereas this might have been hushed up, you know, a few years ago or whatever, I think a couple of to female Tory MPs were cited as being the source of, of this, uh, at this meeting where Christine Harris, who was then the chief whip, um, asked them for what their own experiences and that's when it came out so i yeah. think it showed that there was kind of a different approach in the party uh, towards standards and um you know of course it was fast and it led to the by-election which helped bring down boris johnson mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and and, and ellie uh, there was a, a weird moment when obviously this person when neil Parrish wasn't named in the end he named himself and there was this odd situation there was this witch hunt about trying to work out which mp oh, it was who's the porn and, mp yeah. right exactly yeah. and, and i won't name him because it was you know it's not him but but there was an mp another another mp <laughs> widely whose name named became mud and was it was widely expected that, that he was the person and it wasn't it's gonna be me 
Right. <laughs> You're the kind of person who watched porn and has a conversation. Exactly, there. exactly. It's, it's an absolute nightmare for them. And, and I, think, I remember it being spread on the terrace, just wildfire on the terrace as, as you know, yeah. hacks having a, a drink. I, I was getting WhatsApps from all sorts of people giving me the same names with a few other names littered in. Right. And it was none of the names in the end. So I think, I think that's one of the reasons why Neil Parrish got pushed into, you know, revealing himself was because people were saying, look, all your colleagues are getting ripped apart for your mistake. So you've got to come forward. But when he did reveal himself, he did it through that like really soft weekend magazine. Yeah interview where he sort of sat at home like yeah sorry it was me i was uh watching yeah. porn in the commons yeah <laughs> it's just he, like what he has had one of the most bizarre media strategies of any mp i've ever <laughs> i've ever seen because he he then essentially he then sort of didn't want to stand down and and then he's tried to come back later in the year and he sort of set himself up as sort of a media commentator you you hear people going to him for comment on stuff I was like, why are we asking what this guy thinks about yeah. the, the, the way the conservatives are going it was just pure satire wasn't it and i remember that's because that story had broken at the weekend like being around friends that aren't in politics and they'd they'd see the push alerts or the tweets or whatever and be like what's this what's this about a tractor has he been watching corn <laughs> one of those things that sort of seems like it's going to be a mad headline but actually once you get to the nuance of the story it's a bit different and it was like no, no, he was he was watching porn in the Commons, uh, and his excuse was uh, that he uh, thought it was tractors. Yeah. <laughs> my, my favorite character of all this was uh, Mr. Parrish's wife, who came out and like, yeah, all oh, yeah. men do it. Uh, let, let me find a wife whose husband hasn't watched porn and stormed the vibe and did that kind of like photograph together. In yeah, that in the con- in the country yeah, kitchen, yeah. you know, down in Devon, it, it was Mills and Boone, wasn't it? It was extraordinary, and 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 yeah, as as you say, we'll, we'll come on to it later. But it, there was an there was two by elections on the same day, yeah, uh, and and the way that the the nuance of that with them losing one to Labour and one to the Lib Dems was was kind of catastrophic. But it you know it came at, like I say at a time when obviously Boris Johnson was already struggling. And um, let just before we go on to the next one, let's what are your kind of personal Elliot? What's your personal kind of wildest moment that you've experienced this year in, as a political journalist? Oh, I think I definitely think it was the um, the resignations day ah. when um, I was sat in a portcullis house in Westminster. And not one, but two PPSs who I knew walked past me and were like, yeah, yeah, I'm just on my way to resign. Right. And then, and then that, that first one went by and the next one was like, yeah, I'm on my way to resign. And it was just the most maddest of days that we couldn't, we physically couldn't keep up. Yeah, I was in a TV studio across the road and every time, literally by the time you finished your sentence, someone else had like yeah. resigned. I it think was... I broke the scoop of Ed Arger's resigning. Oh, but it was, <laughs> wow, I know, but it was like number 47 or something. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. I got two likes and a retweet and that was it. You know, no one yeah. cared, it was just so many. Yeah. Laura, as, as editor of that, how do you keep on, how did you keep on top of like, what, what even is the top line when you've got 57 resignations in a single morning? Well, I mean, unfortunately for you guys, I was sat on a beach in East <laughs> Yes. You were. That's yeah. I don't remember this what was it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was. Okay. It was our illustrious editor in chief, Alan White, overseeing that. Yeah. 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 But I mean, actually, <laughs> not to mess with the running order. No, no, no. That, that is sort of my wildest moment. That. I'm used, I still couldn't take my eyes off it. Yeah, so I'm of sort of sat on this sun lounger in Lake Garda, but blasting out Sky News on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and I was luckily with a friend who was a journalist as well, so it was tolerated. But <laughs> like, who's resigned now? Okay, all right, you can read your book for half an hour and you can look at Twitter so that we can keep track of it and just like shouting out these names of, as you say, PPSs. In, in yeah, I think I think I watched, I think earlier, I think I was watching, I watched PMQs on a ski lift earlier this year, which just shows how achingly sad we all are as, as a group of people. Um, but I'll move on to, Number three, the third sort of most insane moment. Obviously, we saw the final Sue Gray report published at the the end of May, which kind of was into uh, 15 social gatherings over eight dates. Um, and the report said the senior leadership at the centre, both political and official, must bear responsibility for this culture. I think perhaps the impact of that report had been blunted by the fact that it dragged on for so long. Yeah. And the key moment, I think, for a lot of journalists and for the public was 
how involved was Boris Johnson and and the Chancellor as well? And we obviously we found out that they'd been fined over this uh, birthday party in the cabinet office. Um, you know, it made obviously the, the Prime Minister the first sitting Prime Minister to, you know, be found to have broken the law. But in sort of true Johnsonian style, he just sort of brushed past that. James, what were you, what did you, did you think that was going to be a moment that would bring him down? Or do you think that, that he, the Boris Bluster would, would get him through that? I mean, I think that the willingness of Tory MPs to go out and defend the Prime Minister as he was then um, was certainly sort of their enthusiasm was was blunt was blunted down over the over these periods because yeah. there were so many times think of him sort of like a great rampaging elephant and all these sort of spears being thrown at him but they were slowing him down yeah and I think basically Partygate was the bit where they kind of they went they, they went they invested so much credibility in him so much political capital but that was basically um, their patience had run out and then it was finally one thing that broke the straw that broke the camel's back which was the pincher scandal um, and that basically brought them down but it was basically to do with credibility they. They, they couldn't trust the Prime Minister's words anymore and they were sick of it. I remember one MP just head in their hands just saying, I can't trust him. And that was the whole point, which is that he didn't believe what the Prime Minister was going to, you know, the word in his capital and he was shot as a political figure as a result of that. Yeah. Um, and, and Ellie, he, he, he then was, after the Sugar report came out, he was very bullish, but then he was booed uh, as he went into Simple Cathedral and that was kind of, and then there was further booing, wasn't there, at the, the concert that on the, that Ghibli weekend. Do you think that was kind of the moment where that things sort of really started to turn against Boris Johnson. Yeah, I think by that point, um, it, you know, quite often with events in Westminster, you kind of think it's a bit of a bubble story um, and most of the country won't care. But this has gone on for so long. There have been so many headlines and it was such like a, a raw issue, the pandemic, that the public did care. And I think half the public were angry and then the other half were, why are we still going on about this? Mm. And so that both caused them to boo. And you could kind of see on his face that day that it was a bit like, oh, this yeah. isn't good. Yeah, because I think in Westminster, people had just become desensitised to it. You know, Boris Johnson's whole shtick is if you just keep messing up and admitting it and smiling and moving on, you'll get away with it. And, and he had, and, and the Tory party also knew what political capital he had, or at least felt he had a lot of political capital in keeping them in power. Mm. You know, it was, what, only 18 months since he'd won that huge majority. Yeah, and won, won seats and put together a coalition that people didn't yeah. think anyone else could have done. So I think MPs were, were really doubling down, like, no, we don't want to lose him because we don't want to lose that. And that Boris Johnson magic, as people have, have coined it sometimes. But um, but yeah, I think seeing people booing him outside the cathedral and not a, a protest, not a load of people they could say was a, a left-wing anti-government yeah, 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 yeah. mob. It's like the kind of people that turn up to watch... Jubilee. Yeah, the, yes. the magic had gone, and then the yeah. by-elections as well just killed off the idea. Yeah, he was a winner, and they think, "Hang on a sec, we've got a guy who's not delivering. Can't trust him. He's getting booed outside the cathedral, yeah. and he's not winning elections. What's the purpose of Boris Johnson?" Yeah, and I think a couple of days afterwards, that's when the the, the MPs finally pulled the trigger and called that vote of no confidence. Um, you know, which was you know a big move. Obviously, he won it, two hundred eleven, two hundred forty-eight. But you know, once you've, it gives him you know, a year's grace period, but as we know from, from Theresa May, who yeah. had the same thing, essentially once you've had a, yeah. a vote of no confidence against you, there really is no coming back, is there, James? I think basically that's 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 true, we've seen in recent years with the Theresa May one as well, and I think at the point where you've got that much of your party committed against you, um, it's going to be very difficult to get your any kind of agenda through, and as yeah. a result it, you seem a diminished figure, and you could see his political authority bleeding out. Yeah, so. absolutely, and I think we'll, we'll go a bit later, but the, the, I think for me is that the amount of times that ministers would go out with the lines to take really defend a quite indefensible position, but would because that was what they were told to do, only to then see the government then U-turn or backtrack and undermine what they've said. And we'll, we'll come on to the, the next one, I think, which was... Well, I was going to say just at that point as well, there was this sort of real dual private and public thing with MPs, where privately MPs 
were really expressing that they were sick of him. You would have a list of declared names for letters of no confidence, but you knew there were loads more. And yeah. there were certainly MPs that told me that they'd put in a letter, but they weren't publicly declaring. So you knew that there was just this huge critical mass of them. And then seeing them on telly or in the papers defending Boris Johnson and just thinking, we know you don't think this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the public probably knew that too. Yeah, and I think, I think that, that contributed towards it. And so moment number four, which is Boris Johnson's final act as prime minister to, to well, finally, later on, but to resign, um, you know, obviously June 23rd, the Tories lost those two by-elections, Wakefield to Labour and, and Lib Dems lost, in, one in Tiverton and Honson. Oliver Dowden resigned, the kind of first of the resignations. Um, but Johnson at the time said he was thinking actively about fighting the next two general elections, um, yeah, which was which looked like his... one didn't wasn't quite as, as seismic, was it? Because I I remember that and thinking, okay, right, clear the schedule for Sunday. Yeah, we're going to have to deal with this big thing. But yeah, Boris Johnson comes back saying it was you know it's sort of a straw in the wind, and obviously the fact that Dowden is such a key Rishi Sunak ally, mm. I think it was seen as maybe mm. as trying to sort of like again, stick another spear in the rhino's hide to see if, you know, slow him down. But it didn't, it didn't slow him down. In fact, it was, it was another, a classic Johnson issue, which was not tackling a scandal with the Chris Pincher problem that, that, that led to his eventual demise. Of course, remember, of course, he had uh, three number 10 reshuffles, if you want to call them that, three different chief of staff in about 18 months. Yeah, a lot of re- resets. Uh, resets, yeah. yeah. The January one basically bought him a bit of time, which was the January, February, early February, which is, you know, you've got Guta Hari brought in. The shadow whipping operation exactly. that he had and all that kind Nigel of stuff. Adams basically, I think, bought him another six months. Which Pincher, Pincher was a key part exactly. of it. And obviously, and, and that's obviously... But this is the problem. You're making these sort of, you know, rods for your own back by bringing people who, you know have unfortunately you know going to be contribute to his own downfall in a different way yeah and so, so Ellie obviously our, our former colleague Noah Hoffman broke the the pincher story four days after leaving us for the for the sun yeah <laughs> in, in fact <laughs> she she <laughs> no not bitter no, no, no. yeah. all those awards she's gonna win they're, they're definitely not our awards really no 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 yeah the, the fun fact about that is that she missed her own leaving drinks right we, yes. uh, we all went to the pub she without did. her we were walking to the pub she got a phone call she was like I've got to go back to the office <laughs> yeah and, and then the yeah, next day the yeah so fair enough so we had a, her leaving drinks without her yeah but yes it, and, it's, and for me it was the fact that you know it was a classic situation where Johnson or you know number Johnson number 10 said that they didn't know or they weren't aware and then as the days went on more and more came out. We had Simon MacDonald, the Foreign Office uh, Permanent Secretary, formally saying he was made aware of these things back when they were both in the Foreign Office. He was made aware earlier in the year. And eventually, you know, ministers like Will Quince and Simon Hart were sent out on the weekend shows to deliver these lines that they clearly just weren't happy with. And that kind of, that, that unhappiness, I think, was one of the direct causes, I think, yeah. of the resignation. It was, it was a perfect double whammy, I think, of obviously Noah broke that incredible story. And then Ioni Wells, the BBC, on the Monday, got the sort of the next stage of it, which I, I believe was the... Lord the, MacDonald. Yeah. MacDonald. That was the letter. That was the letter. Yeah. That was it. And, you know, between the two of them. And, and like you say, them try, him trying to defend it on the Friday and the weekend of them, you know, only half-heartedly defending it. Yeah. That really was the, it was the final, final, final nail yeah. in the coffin. I mean, you guys will speak directly to MPs more than I do, but what was the sense that you got from people as to why it was that that was enough? Because, you know, I mean, it is a, it's a huge scandal and it's a very, very serious and important important thing but so is everything that came before it why mm. why was this one the thing that tipped I, him I think it was about credibility and it was such a stark example whereby 
you know, I think, you know, Simon Hart was going out on the Friday trying to keep this line about, you know, Chris Pincher was Boris aware or not. And he was trying to do it in such a way. And number 10 was like, you need to go harder on your line. Um, and then Will Quince obviously was on LBC on the Monday and it was going out defending the line and it, and it got changed within hours. And then yeah. on the Tuesday, I think he was, someone I spoke to in number 10 was saying he was shouting at Boris, you know. And so basically they were sick of it. It was basically, yeah. I think, that, as I said, the party gate sort of got rid of all the goodwill. The fundamentals of the picture, of course, you know, is at a time when the Tories are sinking in the polls, they're getting down. I mean, only about six points, whatever, but he's lost the magic, he's lost the winner. And I think it was just basically such a stark example where the line was literally changing within hours. Yeah. That was where I would say it got to the point of pure farce yeah. where it was no longer holding even for that. And once you've got that, your credibility's gone. Yeah, and then we had... Uh, that the, the 5th of July was when Downing Street admitted actually, you know, that he was aware of those those issues. And later that evening, we saw Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak mm. quit and start that. And we had probably the two or three weirdest days I've ever experienced as a political reporter. <laughs> I, I, we had sort of yeah. like education secretaries for one day. And Nadim Zahari was made chancellor. And then the following day, oh told God. the PM to resign. There was a delegation of ministers who walked up number 10 to try and prize him out. And in the end, Boris Johnson said, no, I'm sticking around. But, oh, but I'm going to sack Michael Gove. Which was the most this bizarre a great bit. phone call is, uh, you know, for five to nine, he gives him an ultimatum and uh, Boris calls Michael Gove and he's he Michael says, oh, Boris, are you resigning? Then, no, sorry, Michael, you are. <laughs> and um, that was how he got sacked, which I, I kind of love is that this sort of 35 year long relationship dating back to Oxford and ends with them both sort of sacking each other. It was great. <laughs> I also love the sort of the swagger of that quote, which I'm sure, you know, they both knew would be briefed and, mm. and to Boris Johnson thinking it's this big power move while like 50 ministers resigned <laughs> yeah, around him and it's like, yeah, it's probably. Not. For me, it was he was at the liaison committee that day. And, yes, and the Darren liaison committee. Jones yeah, was literally yeah. like, are you aware there's a delegation <laughs> waiting for you, the senior ministers, to tell you to resign? I, I can remember being sat in um, Portcullis House and seeing him arrive and being like, oh my goodness, he's actually churned up. I, we all thought he might. You well, might I think, I think it. It, was, it, was, it was a respite for everything else that was going on because he just sort of ignored everything that was going on and started talking about tanks and Ukraine and all this kind of stuff and and, and completely ignored all that kind of stuff around. And him. like, it's like, so you tell me? It's like, no, no, I've got the photo. I've got, I've got the messages here, like showing these. And this hour-long insane surreal grilling session where all these committee yeah. select committee chairmen who got their roles primarily because they hate Boris Johnson you know, yeah. like, liaison committees are weird for that reason anyway because exactly. it's the sort of greatest hits of things you want to grill the you know and, then, and so it was, it, was, it was extraordinary and then eventually you know he, the, the penny finally drops and on the morning of the, the 7th of July he, he stood down but it was I felt it was one of the most graceless speeches by a departing prime minister I've ever heard. It was so unrepentant. There was no apology. There was nothing. And he accused MPs of acting like a herd, essentially, when the herd moves. It wasn't the last time we'd hear that kind of speech. No, absolutely oh, no. not. No, no, no. And, and, and he ended with, I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world, but them's the breaks. Which I think for a person who's so committed to history and quotations, if that is going to be his sort of like epitaph is them's the breaks. It was a, hardly the kind of oratorial speech we'd come to expect. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah, that was his final that in the house, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, ridiculous. That will be in history books, those words. Hasta la vista, baby. Has, yeah. any, has anyone made a, a supercut of Boris Johnson contrition? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we'll move on to number five, which is obviously what led into that was that the Conservative Leadership Contest is launched um, my favourite of those of the 11 was uh, Raymond Chisty, the, the Gillingham MP. We had him in here for a podcast earlier this year. Right it was generally my favourite <laughs> podcast of the year. He is a remarkable, remarkable politician. Um, brave. Bra brave, brave, yeah, in, in the truest sort of like, um, yes, minister sense. Very brave minister, very brave. Um, who unfortunately did not make the... the, the, the uh, very the, sad. This threshold. This time. This time around. So was it, uh, remind me, did we have to have, did they have to have like 
How many backers did they have to have to get on the list? That, was it, was it 50, 15, no, I think? No, wasn't it, it was, wasn't it 20? 20 for the first 20 round. 20 for the first round, then it was 30 for the next, and thereafter it was sort of knock them out. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. it was like a threshold you had to exactly, meet in the first yeah. round, and then it was the yeah, next Yeah, so Raymond ended out. up having this 24 hours of launching it, and then... Yes, he, he unfortunately did not have any de- declared backers. He said he had <laughs> lots of positive conversations, but um, but amongst those, yeah, there was, there was 11 candidates, and, and it was... I think the most bizarre launch was Suella Braverman launched, appeared to launch her leadership bid live on the Peston program mm. while still the Attorney okay. General. Yeah, which was frankly extraordinary. Um, you went to a couple of these, uh, what were your kind of memories, Ellie, of going to these various launches on this? It, it, the Westminster was extremely hot at that point. It was like 40 degrees. Yes, I, I went to, um, there was a uh, Conservative Way Forward event in the, uh, the Churchill War Rooms when it was probably the hottest room I've ever been in my life. Some poor young lady fainted. Right. And yep. Nadeem looked up and carried on with the speech. He carried on <laughs> and like my jaw was on the floor. Like I couldn't believe because he, he was aware of it and mm. kept on talking. Him and Suella spoke. I went to uh, Liz Truss's launch where she got lost. Yes. Um, she she did, accidentally yeah. walked straight past the door and was going to the back of the room and uh, an aide had to usher her in the correct direction. Uh, bless her. And it was um, quite an extraordinary time. It was very hot. Um, it Boris Johnson now blames the heat. He now says that basically he bla- he says that basically everyone everyone in Westminster got everyone too was just delirious. Yeah, everyone got too hot and bothered. That's his kind of uh, his his. I can remember we, we were watching the votes and um, I had to text the group chat with um, our sort of work one, being like, I can't stand in this corridor anymore. I'm going to collapse. Please, yeah. someone tap in. And I think all the MPs are feeling the same way. You know, they. I, I I had that that kind of fortnight was was gloriously surreal and and I was at the same event with Ellie Churchill Warrams and I looked behind me and I'm I'm with David Frost and uh, we got lost in the Churchill Warrams. And I remember asking what I thought was a security guard for it. It was actually one of the waxworks. Oh, I've done it before. <laughs> it's, it's really easily done in the church. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't get much of an answer. There was that. I remember getting ice lollies at Sajid Javid's launch at the, oh, curry, at the Cinnamon yeah. Club. Um, they, oh, yeah. I think they had yeah. multiple launches that same day. Penny Mordant's one as well. Um, and that, cater- was a, that was in a tiny little room. Yeah, yes. it was. The that catering was at Tom Tuganat's was very good. They, they yeah. opened up the cafe and you could just get anything you wanted from the cafe. Yeah. That, was, that was pretty good. Liz Trust, she got lost on the way out of hers. Yeah, yeah that was quite yeah. remarkable. I mean... And, Obviously, whittled down to the final two, which was obviously Rishi Sunak and, and Liz Truss. And James, there was sort of a, a kind of a mania took over, which was, you know, Sunak was this right-wing Brexiteer darling. And he was cast as this, the wet liberal choice. Whereas Liz Truss was a teenage Lib Dem, a Remain supporter, suddenly became this sort of Thatcherite poster girl. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson might say that we, we all lost our minds. Did we actually lose our minds in that kind of, or did Tory members lose their minds? <laughs> um, I think it's about, I think it was about vibes, wasn't it? The vibes theory of politics, mm. which is that the way they conducted themselves. And I think Liz Truss had a more shoot from the hip operate, uh, approach, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, said, you know, Macron friend or foe, et cetera. I think it was that people, you know, projected onto her. Perhaps she was maybe more of an unknown. And so they projected onto what they wanted to see. It was more hope rather than expectation. And I think what was really interesting was the dynamics in that contest. As soon as the sort of ERG wing swung behind her, got down to the final two. Yeah. I think I think what really decided them was basically there was this, this staunch um, pro-Boris uh, anti-Rishi kind of anti-trailer narrative um, perpetuated people like Nadine Dorries and Jacob Rees-Mogg yeah the that, stab in the back theory. exactly I mean literally she posted a picture of him stabbing Johnson yeah. in the back so the whole machine the John, the Boris Johnson machine swung Which, behind Rishi um, that's even happening yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. and also Nadine Dorries had a I mean her posting is, is wonderful mm. but she also posted at the time there was a big row about um, Rishi's next shoes he was wearing these like 400 pound loafers they were Prada loafers Prada yeah. loafers and, then, and, she, and she said that Liz Truss gets her earrings from Claire's accessories 
I mean, Rishi Sunak <laughs> is a well-dressed man with a, yeah. with a budget for it. I, I think one of the interesting things about that leadership contest as well was how sort of broad and disparate it was. Yeah. And in contrast to the 2019 and 2016 ones where, you know, Boris Johnson was the clear front runner, yeah, Theresa yeah. May was the clear front runner, whereas we had 11 people and there were Kimi Badenoch, um, Suella Braverman, Jeremy Hunt, Penny Morden, Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, Tom Tugendhat, uh, Nadeem Zahawi, Raymond Christie, Sajid Javid and Grant Shapps. And... I think, you know, that's all sorts of wings of the Tory party yeah, it, represented, isn't it? did feel at the start it? like it was maybe going to be a genuine discussion about the future of the Tory party. And then in the end, the machine sort of took over and it ended up just being the yeah. same old sort of faces. And again, quite a it? young list as well. And, yeah. you know, given we may have an election within the next couple of years that the Tories don't win, if we see mm. Rishi Sunak stand down. I mean, who do you guys think stands out from that list as the Karen future Badenoch. of the Tory party? Karen, and, Karen Badenoch for yeah. me. I think yeah. Jeremy Hunt was like, for instance, you know, it was clearly the past. Was never. You think you only really get... Sort of, you get. I think you get sort of two shots. And you get a sense where you can be like the outsider coming in. And you have one where you have to win it, and you, you know you can't. So I think Kevin Bandock for me is the one to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she'd be very, she'd be the one to watch for the leader of the opposition, perhaps a more punchy performer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, I think Laura makes a great, great point about the disparate nature. I think the Sunday Times did a graphic where they showed that there were four times as many promises made during that leadership contest <laughs> as there were last time around. And it was a huge. And, and of course, it ended up being the winner didn't end well. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> and it ended being by one issue, the mini budget. But it's just funny as you look back as you say how and, it, and there was increasing this farcical nature as it went on for so many weeks and the country's economic situation worsened mm-hmm. um, when all these hustings around the country so I don't think we'll ever get a kind of leadership contest like that in government again no, no and I think you know the, it's a good point about Kemi that she she actually did really well in the hostings, of which there were so many. And the, and the TV debates as well, I thought. And yeah. I think there was a real sense that that was the first time a lot of the country were being introduced to her. When was she elected in 2017? Yeah, yeah, so so it was very much like a pre-run, and, and I think you're totally right. I can see here. And that's one of the, the stories, the, one of the stories this year, I think, is the, the class of 2010, that Tory generation, people like, you know, Matt Hancock, Liz Truss, etc., being eclipsed. And I think what you see now is the, the I thought it was really interesting, that resignation when she resigned from Boris's government, Kemi Badenoch, when the people like Lee Rowley signing her letter. Mm. Do you remember there's like five resignations? together yeah. and I think that's kind of laying down a mark of the 2017 intake of the ones to watch for the future yeah. right well we're halfway through so then we'll just do a break for a little quick quiz based around the fact that we've had so many ministers this year so God. a few questions right you know so who was justice secretary under Liz Truss uh Brandon Lewis there we go one to heal <laughs> I wrote the book <laughs> <laughs> that's true you've got one Ed so but who was the Northern Ireland secretary between July and September I can't remember his name, but I know Northern Ireland. <laughs> it was Vara, wasn't it? Shailesh yes. Vara, there oh we go. Gosh, right, yeah. okay. Uh, which of these MPs was not a minister at any point this year? Okay. So okay. Julie Marson, Alan Mack, Carl McCartney, Holly Mumbycroft, and Leah Nietzsche. Oh my God. Only one of them was not a minister at some point this year. I know Carl McCartney was briefly. All, all year or just in the chaos? Just, well, exactly. At some <laughs> point it? this year... It's not Alan Mack because he was a. He was not Alan Mack. I was at the Treasury Week. Yeah. yeah. Was um, it Holly? Holly Mumbycroft? Holly Mumbycroft is the only one. Unfold- oh, well done. I mean, you know, it was sort of everyone got to be a minister this year <laughs> for five just, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> She's the only one who didn't who didn't make it, unfortunately. unfortunately. I mean, I really, I really uh, wasn't sure about that. The final, final question. There are five education secretaries this year. Can we name all five education secretaries? Nadim Zahawi. Nadim, yep. Michelle Donnellan. Yep. we've got two Um, wasn't it cleverly 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 was uh, education secretary yes has Therese Coffey done education at any point not this year so we've got three we've got three there's the current one you've not got got the current one Michelle Donnellan did it twice didn't she no 
Who's the current one? Oh, he's the current one, yeah. <laughs> Who's the current one? Exactly. This is great. Four political, three political journalists. Right. We should look, see, this is just a demonstration of how chaotic it is. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I'll put out your misery. So it's uh, Nadim Zahawi, Michelle Donnellan, James Cleverly, Kit Malthouse. Oh. And now it's currently Gillian Keegan. Apologies, you know, you know Gillian. You're welcome on the oh podcast God. anytime to talk about your education platform. Um, Kit Malthouse was on the cover of one of our auditions, wasn't he, as education secretary? He was, although he was no longer education secretary by the time the magazine came out, I don't think. Uh, no, that was Nadim Zahawi. Oh, uh, right, yeah. I'm well, pretty sure we had Kit Malthouse in another edition. Shit. Occupational hazard having a two weekly magazine, well, a two week magazine. On the plus side, at least you weren't, I think, was it Hello Magazine, which did the cover celebrating why this was going to be a great year for the Queen? Oh, wow, yeah. oh God. Uh, which came out after she died. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, let's return to. So, Liz, obviously, number six is Liz Truss's elected uh, leader and the famous tweet. Ready to hit the ground <laughs> from day one, and uh, basically that's that's deliver, broadly, deliver, deliver. She certainly did. Funny, I mean, that is literally <laughs> yeah. what happened. Yeah. Um, Johnson, uh, who gave the next one of his kind of uh, graceless speeches, quoted Cincinnatus. Yeah. Uh, James, like the sort of person who did Latin at school, so can what, can you explain to us what that quote was all about? Um, that was about going back to, um, he was a great, uh, great soldier and he returned to his farm. Yeah. Um, basically sort of laying down his arms and retreating from that and said he was going to be like that, but of course he won't. He's, uh, he's always, he never leaves the arena. He's always skulking in the wings somewhere. Right, right. the contrast. And so that was kind of the, I suppose the hint that Johnson was not going to Go leave, quietly into the night, yes. Not go quietly. And as we, as we later found, he, he, he decided to give it another, another tilt later on. Um, you know, obviously Truss won by a fairly healthy majority, 57.4% to 42.6%. The and third... it was so obvious she was going to win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so she, she had that, that plan that she'd set out, we kind of knew what she was going to do. She was going to you know, hit the ground running. Unfortunately, the, you know, the third day in the job, the Queen died. And that put a real, uh, you know, damper on it. James, you obviously wrote with uh, our friend Harry Cole the, the biography of, of Liz Truss's mm. time. That period, the 10-day mourning period, did that kind of, that? how important was that? in then what we then saw in the mini budget and the problems from there on. Uh, I mean, because of course, on day two, she announces the energy price guarantee. Yeah, which had been this big thing over the week, over mm. the summer, as the prices kept going up and the government was not enacting anything. Everyone was very worried going into the winter. And so it needed that to be priority number one, which she... she yeah, made. but I think I think there was, I think it sort of spooked the markets by how big it was. So they were all pretty bit jumpy. Obviously, the world economy was not in a good place. Um, then we have this mourning period. And I think that mourning period and the period in late August in early uh, September, where she's going to clearly become, winner, uh, you know, Prime Minister, as Laura says, she's the front runner. A lot of the assumptions were baked into this mini budget, which proved to be later fatal. And I think the morning period is really interesting because suddenly, the, suddenly there was no political criticism, no commentary, whatever. And I think that's when they decided to go for the uh, 45p tax cut, yeah, um, top rate tax. And um, I think. Yeah, I think basically it was, as one advisor said to me, it was, it was hubris followed by nemesis. And it sort of had this winning run when there'd, there'd been no kind of criticism or anything like that. And, it, and then so morning period ends, bang, and then we go straight back into it. And the market's are feeling a bit jumpy from the energy price guarantee. Then the mini budget sort of tends them over the edge. And then you get things like, you know, quasi quite telling Laura Koonsberg that there's more to come. Yeah. putting petrol on the flames. And that's where we saw the incredible economic situation which ended with her becoming the shortest serving prime minister in British yeah that, that's that, going into that is point number seven you know quasi launches the, the mini budget you know blows the door off it basically and says there's no OBR report to go alongside it which I think was a, a key part of it you know scrapping the top rate of tax cap on bankers bonuses is gone plan rise in corporation taxes ditched an increase in national insurance is reversed you know it, it was it was huge and I remember probably my favorite moment of, of the year or, or most interesting moment was that we were at Labour conference and we're coming on the way back 
and the three of us were all sat there working on the, on the train on the way back. And the pensions market was literally like about to collapse. And I thought the pension market would collapse by the time I got off the train. It was like, what on earth is going on? It was so horrible. Everybody sort of admittedly hung over on the train yeah. on the way back as well <laughs> yeah. from the Tuesday night parties and the train Wi-Fi was terrible. And I'm just, because I, I was on a different train. Yeah, you'd, you'd got the earlier Talking train, to you guys yeah. and just this total panic and thinking, I bet all these people were else don't realise what yeah. And announcing that mini budget, was it two days before Labour conference? Yeah. Insane. You know, that top rate attacks, of course, they went to town on that. And it was a tale of two conferences. So Labour conference felt much more like a, a traditional Tory one, very staid, boring, no real dissent. Uh, great, lots of suits, business, corp- you know. And then the Tory one was a Labour one because everyone was infighting. I remember MPs would literally come up to you, to me when they would say, oh, you better hurry up with that book, you know, we're going to get rid of her soon. And I was like, thanks, mate. You're the third one to say that today. Um, and I, the, my, my abiding memory will be the first night of conference yeah. and going up there was some you know drinks thing for some journalists and some cabinet members were there grandees hotel suite half midnight i hear a commotion outside i go outside and it's my co-author harry cole having a stand-up row with a number 10 apparatic and they're going back and forth we're going to run it and then it's 45p tax cut you're yeah. killing it you're killing it uh, we can't give you, a, you know, it gives a holding answer holding it we're going to run it run it you chase them to the lift puts the foot in the elevator closing it presses send and that point it's 12 30 first night everyone is like hammered in that room and that's when they find out um one cabinet minister just looked at their phone that the 45p tax cut was going to get ditched they put, they put down the drink said thanks harry and walked off and that the party was kind of cancelled everyone swept out yeah to deal I, with it. well i remember i was with i was with elliot you and i were at the the conservative home drinks event on the on the sunday night at Tory yeah. conference and the the prime minister had just come from a meeting where she decided to ditch this and she put a poker face on and she stood up in front of the assembled mps and the half the lobby and said how brilliantly things were going and how well it was going to go knowing full well that in the burning outside. yeah in yeah. the background yeah. you know it was it was a remarkable a few days really i think and, and that was for me that was one of the craziest conferences i've ever been to i think yeah, I completely agree with James that, I, I, you know, there was no chaos at Labour. Everyone was fine and friends. And then we got to the Tories and they were all just, uh, you know, sniping at each other. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, but that, the, the U-turn midway through conference, quite extraordinary. That's, that's really not what conferences are for. That's for when you sort of boast about how fantastic your policies are, not chuck them out the window <laughs> yeah. days after you've made them. Yeah. And again, the Liz Trust just remained poker face throughout all of it and it, I mean it was quite remarkable I remember sitting in the main hall and watching her speech and she was so calm She, you could see she was really enjoying giving this speech and this is after like four days of chaos as you describe and I remember seeing minister, the only time you would even see a minister in the conference hall was when they were being chased down by some broadcast journalists and were refusing to give them <laughs> Any comments? And then, you know, Liz just sort of happily and calmly delivers this speech about yeah, the well, anti-growth coalition. The, and... afore- the anti-growth coalition. <laughs> the aforementioned Michael Gove was, you know, going Tarsing around. himself about. Yeah, Honestly, yeah. it was rare to go to an event where Michael Gove wasn't yeah, speaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was absolutely extraordinary. And, and, and I remember um, walking past one of the tents and uh, Grant Shapps was showing off this enormous phone that he'd bought. He was essentially just using to, like, basically launch grenades at his own government <laughs> with, yeah. uh, you know, and these, this remarkable kind of, you know, situation that, that was going on. There was a really extraordinary moment where it was, um, I was at an event with Michael Gove and then next door was an event with Jacob Rees-Mogg and they were both talking about each other. <laughs> and then midway through, uh, a, a, a journalist put their hand up for questions and said, uh, Mr. Gove, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg just said this about you. What do you think? And them sort of just going back and forth at each other from the tent <laughs> next to each other. Passing messages via journalists. Via journalists. Today everyone was tweeting and it was absolutely extraordinary them just kind of like sniping at each other yeah. through the wall effectively yeah and i haven't got and through that conference yeah, so, I was gonna say, and yet the week before at labor it was just this very slick mm. operation 
um, they'd done the mini budget on the Friday and then Quasi Quarteng had wound everyone up even further on the Laura Coonsberg show on Sunday. And so Labour was just lots of MPs being like, wow, are they actually doing this? All right. right yeah. <laughs> and just and I've been, so I've been confident, few, I've been so happy. a few Labour conferences that have been a, a bit of a rabble yeah. before over the past few years and, and real infighting. There was the one where they tried to sack the deputy leader, uh, Tom Watson, the day before conference started, all this kind of stuff. And it was very different from that. It was very machined and well-oiled. And, and I think there was a real, yeah, there's a real kind of changing of the guard feel that we've, we've talked about a lot, I think, over, over, over the year, that, that actually that's that's kind of the, the, the feeling it was. And James, what was your kind of feeling from Labour conference? What was your feeling when you left? Well, less Hawaiian shirts, uh, <laughs> less socialist worker placards. Uh, I got a shout out at uh, Zara Sultana's annual pub quiz with the uh, Trot Fest and the Momentum Festival because last year I won it by mistake. And I had to go up on stage and collect the prize, which was a, a jar of homemade jam from yes, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn's allotment. I mean, that is worth something. Yeah, which you then brought like... to Labelist Karaoke. I remember that. Yeah, that was, uh, I, I was now banned from that. But the, I, the last year was a bigger event. And this year, I mean, the, the sort of Momentum side event was much smaller. And I think it shows, again, the, the left's continuing power within the party. Um, I think it shows that the Kastam machine is is, is is very solid um and i think yeah it was it was a good conference for labor the speech went well he's getting better kiss dumber's conference speeches mm. um, and i think really one of the stories of this parliament is uh labor ongoing better relationship with business and the decline of the tories and yeah. uh, if you talk to any lobbyists people were involved in there it was, it was, it was like, like night and day in their approach and yeah, that conference I mean, felt like the turning point where labor genuinely believed they actually could win the yeah, next election yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know from a sort of year in review perspective if anyone had said in january do you think like january 2022 do you think labor could win the next election You'd be like, nah, they're kind of getting better and it's not looking great for the Tory party right now, but and, certainly another and, year and that's what poll, time in opposition. And that's what polling shows as well, yeah. is that most people, I mean, the Labour have led since about, I think, September last year, but it was only around the time of the mini budget in this year that people now think they expect a Labour government. So they're not just voting for one, they're expecting, and that's the kind of default assumption has shifted for the first time in about a decade. Yeah. Which in 12 months is... Yeah, pretty center, extraordinary. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're on to number eight now. Liz Truss stands down after... Well, she stood down to 44 days. She left after 49 days to be... Yeah, to be sure. I mean, you know, just Which to really, really work it out. And yeah. there are three quotes I'm just going to say that, that really summed up that moment for me. I'm a fighter, not a quitter from, from Liz Truss. And then she quits. Uh, the Prime Minister is not under a desk from Penny Morden. It's a very useful. And then I am effing furious and I don't give an F anymore. You can do the swears. I think they need the swears. I am fucking furious and I don't give a fuck anymore. And that was Craig Whitaker, the Deputy Chief Whip, like in full view of the lobby of everyone, of MPs in Parliament on a night when I was actually in, I was in New York at the time. I really wish I'd been in, in Parliament. That's how much of a nerd I am. But I really wish I was there because it sounded like an absolutely crazy time. There was this vote on fracking that was meant to be a confidence vote mm. and then wasn't a confidence vote. And it really just showed that the, the, the trust government was was falling apart. James, as a, a biographer, where where does that land in your in your book? Yeah. What, what, you know, what, what's, what kind of moment is that for you? I think, I think it's important. I think the mini budget was the thing that did for her and the fallout, obviously, because at that point it was like, well, if she's not going to do free market, that's the right things, well, what's the point of her? Um, she'd abandoned her agenda when she sat quiet as well that was a millstone but the, the, the fracking yeah. thing was the thing that finished her off because uh, we, there was a kind of scenario perhaps where she could survive for months maybe even up to a year as a conventional Tory Prime Minister and doing that was people saying Tory. that on the Monday yeah exactly literally by, just by Wednesday 72 hours beforehand yeah. you know and, and they thought we could do a Theresa May because Theresa May had that disastrous snap election she then lasted for more than two years could she do the same but as you say it was a fracking vote and it was the, the passions that were aroused within people they just thought they were sick of this anything would be better whatever other people were reluctant to kind of put the knife in because they'd only had a contest that the previous month in September for her but uh, that was the thing which really killed them you had a whip system breaking down and again it's the institutions of government once those break down you can't do your media and you can't do the whips you're finished yeah Ellie there was on that night as well there was kind of allegations of harassing MPs in the lobbies there was pictures taken of, of 
people being dragged through the lobbies. And I think that for a lot of MPs, that was just well beyond the pale, right? Yeah, it was, um, Chris Bryant stood up in the in the Commons and, and the le leader of the Commons has since said that, you know, there is no evidence of, of bullying. But on the night, Chris Bryant was very, very passionately speaking about it, saying that he'd seen people being manhandled and bullied and forced. Uh, one of the people that was named was Alex Stafford, Rother Valley MP. He insists it was just a strong exchange of words, but you can see the picture that Chris Bryant posted. You can see him, and I think there's two whips next yeah, to him. Yeah, I think one of the most extraordinary political pictures of this year, I think. Yeah. You know, you never normally see inside the lobbies. Yeah, you're For a good reason, to... really. Yeah. But yeah, that was kind of extraordinary, really, to see. Yeah. What would, I mean, you were in New York because we all take holidays when the, <laughs> the drama things happen. I was off as well. But um, like, what were your experiences, both of you, of, of being in the Commons that week? You know, the... Um, Prime Minister is not under a desk quote was because I mean Liz Truss had literally gone AWOL for, yeah for and it's the same thing because it was she was in Parliament but not in yeah. the Commons Chamber she, and so there was this statement about her future that was going on and she sort of turned up midway through I think it, again it was just a sense of where is the leadership? Who it was? I think there was a complete vacancy there, and I'm, I think there was a frustration. Basically, MPs just were wanted some kind of leadership or show, and they felt that they should abandon their whole agenda. She didn't have a, she wasn't a good communicator, um, and so as you say, you have these kind of surreal scenarios where. Penny Morden was going out to defend her. Um, and it all just boiled down. It always comes back to the par parliament, I think, and, and, and the cockpit of our democracy. And, um, you know, when MPs are together, they can plot. And obviously they brought her down very quickly. And that was when Graham Brady was sent in to go and talk to her on the Thursday morning. Yeah, Graham Brady, I think, is a very interesting character in, in the year's kind of politics. This is kind of... The one like this, fixture, yeah. This kind of this, like, dark lord that comes in and just sort of, like, <laughs> hands the gun and, and tells MPs where to go. I'm going to introduce who I think is the, the main character of this year, which is a lettuce. Ah. Um, Ellie, could you talk us through why a lettuce became such a, a big figure this year? Oh, that was absolutely wonderful. Um, the Daily Star set up a live stream of a lettuce and whether Liz Truss could outlast it. And I think the best thing was that it started out as just a lettuce and then it got googly eyes. And as time went on, more and more was added. They had a tofu for yeah. Sweller Bravman's tofu comments and, and uh, little bottles of drink and, and things like that and uh, a disco ball. And then the lettuce did outlast the Prime Minister. The lettuce was still going. I mean, you can't really top that, can you? It wasn't even Try like... Try writing a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just gonna, before we come on to like numbers nine and ten, what, what was your kind of wildest oh moment? I suppose God. this is the point where you finally finished the, the book. I, I remember seeing Harry that, that week and him being incredibly stressed uh, uh, the week after. And, you know, what did you... Did you just sleep for like a week? What did you do after, after uh, you finally sent it we, off? We, 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 we sent it off. As the car rolled out of Downing Street, that's when we sent it off to them. Um, and I think I did crash that evening. But <laughs> it was extraordinary. It was, it was a very difficult. And it's, as we're all journalists here, so it's, you've obviously got the media story and what the news line is, but also trying to talk to people about the instant reactions to the trust government. And I yeah. think actually, funnily enough, the more we move away from that period, the, the stranger it looks in, in retrospect, the kind of more the trust experiment, if you will, um, a kind of economic sewers where basically we lost the international markets and became this kind of international case. I mean, for better or worse. I mean, the way Joe Biden's tried to use it quite cynically, I think, against the Republicans. Um, but it was, a, it was an extraordinary time. And um, I just remember it was the world's longest Google Doc, and we had 105,000 <laughs> words, just kept adding more. And like we're like, Harry's like, leave it, leave it. Like, one more quote, one more line. Um, and an instant judgment. And hopefully it's kind of... We thought we might get two years out of it. We got two months. So, uh. <laughs> what ended up on the cutting room floor that you wish you could get in? Oh, um, what, what ended up on the cutting room floor? Do you know what? I think there's now been... More people have been coming out. Asa Bennett, her speechwriter, has now done a spoke to Nick Robinson. So I would have just loved to get more impressions, kind of always adding to that. Um, but I think, I think we pretty much kept it all in what we had before, really. I think we maybe 
change a few underestimated to overestimated. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, uh, no, no, but like the tenth. Yeah, because I remember the, the, the subtitle of the book has changed a few times. You know, as, as, as a, you know, the, the rise and then fall had to be added into yeah, it. Essentially, yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, it, it was such a meme. It became like a sort of fixture, and we went viral. My sister's at uh, at university in Freshers Week, and she was getting the WhatsApp group messages with the meme, the picture. And my dad got sent by some boomer chat, you know. <laughs> so yeah, what did you? I suppose your wildest moment is becoming a meme. Then I suppose in the, the oh year yeah. Utterly surreal, yeah. And I wrote a piece to the spectator, will anyone buy my Liz Trust book? Uh, which ended with Fraser being like, as a sort of digger, help James out this Christmas. Uh, as a link to it. But it was, um, I, that was probably it. Yeah. That actually becomes a great live document. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the, the first chapter of history, moment. isn't it? Like, yeah, we're not, yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope we we're not going to live through that kind of chaos. I refer to obituaries, basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, let's move on to number nine, which obviously is, as a result of that, the 1922 committee uh, had to scramble to get another leader in place. They changed the rules. Uh, that threshold we talked about earlier suddenly became 100 MPs yep. to try and squeeze out enemy from, from the ballot. Um, and Boris Johnson decided actually this, you know, enough time had elapsed. It was about three months uh, <laughs> for him to try and come back. He was actually in the Caribbean, I think, at the time and jetted back. Uh, we were being told by his kind of surrogates. Economy class. He jetted back economy class. He did. Class. We, were being, we were being told by his surrogates like James Doddridge that he had the numbers or was getting close to the numbers that we never actually got to see that list publicly of the MPs who were backing him. The big moment for me over that weekend was this summit in Millbank Tower, you know, where the two of them go in. It's just the two of them in the room, you know, where they decide essentially. Boris and Rishi. Yeah. Boris and Rishi, they go into this room and they come out and there's no deal. Mm. And then the next day, Boris pulls out. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in that. What, what was the deal they were trying to strike Well, again? exactly. I mean, clearly it was who gets to be prime minister yeah. and who gets to be deputy. And uh, you can imagine how that conversation would have gone. I mean, James, what, what, what did you kind of make of that weekend and, and that meeting? What do you think kind of the reason they didn't come to an agreement, do you think? I think because Rishi was in a much stronger position yeah. and he recognised that and he played it very well. Um, to do so in a way where I think he was very, he was more restrained. His camp was more restrained in its briefings. Uh, they knew they were the favourite and um, they didn't kind of, you know, go out and make it a point of pride or anything like that mm. and basically just let events play out and the, basically the, the ticking clock meant that Boris did, wouldn't get 100 publicly that we know of obviously since then Sir Graham Brady said he had 100 names but we'll never know the um, the names of those names <laughs> put it that yeah. way what I would say is that it's a nice way it kind of rounds off the whole year because we started the year talking about Partygate ends with the Privileges Committee and that was a huge reason hang, hang over this whole debate which was yeah. hang on a sec we can't put the guy back in we got that rid of six months ago we've still, not, under we've still, not, yeah, still not sorted out the investigation exactly. for the reason he left in the he first lied to the house yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and Ellie, um, famously in 2016, Boris Johnson pulled out of a leadership contest at his own launch, which is a remark. Um, and one of the people in the front row sat there was Nadim Zahawi and, and, and Nadine Doris. And then this time around again, Nadim Zahawi writes this piece for The Telegraph that goes oh, up at 8pm. I think it went online at 8.02pm saying how Boris Johnson should stand. And at 8pm, a message went around saying that Boris Johnson was going to pull out of the, the race. I mean, poor old Nadim Zahawi, you know, it happened to him again, happened to him twice. I mean, you've got a feel for the guy really in that situation. Yeah, and he wasn't the only one. James Cleverly was another one who went out, I think on the morning, yeah. uh, backing um, Boris Johnson and quickly regretted that decision, I believe, because yeah. <laughs> it made him look a bit silly. He luckily kept his job in the reshuffle. He did, yeah. But he, yeah, Nadim Sahawi is uh, unique in having made that mistake twice. It's extraordinary as well how, I mean, genuinely in July, he was one of the favourites to succeed Boris Johnson and then he took the Chancellor job. And one of the things I got told was that the trust camp were terrified if, if, if um, Boris had offered the Chancellor. What do you do at that point where he was clearly going to cease being Prime Minister? But if you were Chancellor, you then get bound to his fate. Yeah, yeah. And I think Nadim Zawi took that 
that and it turned out to be a bit of a poison chalice where as a result of that his own launch failed to start really in that July week got knocked out quite quickly um, and then obviously since then he's had a different jobs throughout the whole um, different around the cabinet table um, and um, yeah I think it's just a, a lesson of how you know luck can play a role in these kind of things and timing is everything in politics yeah absolutely and so that, that was on the Sunday night he pulls out on the Monday the is the, the deadline to get this there Penny Mordaunt was the only other candidate who was looking like they might you know, go for it. And she really took it down to the wire, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah, I mean, it was it was two p.m., wasn't it? And we were all waiting for whether she was going to make it or not. And then just before she announced that she was going to pull out. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, you know, that led to this Sunak Which coronation. Put everyone out of their misery as well because it didn't have to then go to a wider yeah. ballot. There was going to be an online ballot. Of members, there was, there? and there was a lot of issues about about that about people signing up, and there was apparently. 20,000 Tory members didn't have an email, which, you know, that, that kind yeah. of stuff, uh, which could have been interesting. Uh, you know, Sunak, obviously, coronation, he is in this weird position where he inherits the Chancellor and doesn't change. Jeremy inherited Jeremy Hunt, who'd taken over from Kwasi Kwasi and didn't change him, which is a strange position to be in. He also then put people back in the, a lot of the same positions they were previously. And it was almost a sense that, like, that aberration, that period over the summer had just not happened and we'd just gone back to where we were previously and and it's a very strange position to find himself and just sort of say oh all that stuff that happened we're just you know we're just going to reverse it now and we're just going to go back to where we were and putting people back in the same job Michael Gove goes back to leveling up Rob goes back to to justice it's a strange position to find ourselves in and it's almost like did did, did it really happen Ellie did it really happen Maybe it didn't. Maybe, Maybe it didn't. Maybe it's all just a... That's what CCHQ would like you to believe. Yeah. <laughs> there was no mini-budget. What are you talking about? Budget. It was all just a collective fever dream and Rishi Sunak won in September and everything's been fine since then. The Queen's still alive, you know, everything's fine. Yeah, right. It's a, very, it's a surreal <laughs> position to be in, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it, it doesn't really make any sense. And, and it's obviously the fact he's taking over. Whoever took over in September would have had a very difficult position. Taking over in late October was an even harder position to be in. You know, Laura, what have you kind of made of the way that Sunak has gone about that since obviously he's focused on the economy and now he's focusing on small boats it's kind of a strange tact that he's been taking I suppose and not picking too many fights I suppose yeah I mean he's just trying to keep himself out of trouble isn't he and avert any more chaos um obviously the economy was the one thing that they had to tackle they had to have a plan on they were clearly willing to be unpopular because they just had to deal with it and it was more important to be popular with the markets than MPs as Liz Truss so brutally demonstrated um small boats I guess you know that is something that Tory voters care a lot about it's something that the Tory backbenchers care a lot about so if he's going to pick one issue that he's going to make his big issue yeah. I mean of course you know it, it is a, a real world issue that that needs to be addressed as well but you know there are many we're, we're recording this podcast right now and I don't know if it's being picked up on the mics but you can hear nurses shouting outside because it's the first nurses strike in mm. whatever in fact um our office is just next to, to guys hospital uh, I mean the government is is holding steady on strikes and they're not really responding to it but yeah so the fact that they've taken small boats instead is it's like okay we can please our backbenchers with this we can look politically strong and hopefully keep everyone quiet until the new year and I I mean I think it seems that MPs are just so exhausted and yeah. so tired of this year that actually there aren't any rebellions. But yeah, I th there I is a sense they're bubbling up for the new year. I think so. And that, that's the, the number 10, the final one that we're, we're seeing now is, is the kind of the, the push away from what we've seen this year into, into the next year. And, you know, there are lots of kind of the, the, like the complaints about that Sunak is managing by boredom, essentially. But we're also seeing perhaps... The future, and we're seeing lots of MPs suggesting they're standing down, people like Sajid Javid and, and some of the younger cohorts. Obviously, the probably most exciting or exciting, the bizarre one of those was, was Matt Hancock. Um, so Ellie, just talk us through what Matt Hancock has been doing these past, uh, past few weeks. 
Well, <laughs> uh, some some listeners may have spotted that he was on a little show called I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Um, re- yeah. Reports are that he um, had turned it down a couple of times and then realised he hadn't got a job and <laughs> so accepted the, you know, measly £400,000 or so he's rumoured to have gotten and hopped on a plane to Australia. Yeah. Well, uh, he was there to talk about dyslexia though, Ellie. Come on. Yeah. He, was there to, he, was there to, he was there to promote his dyslexia uh, And I think he did manage to mention it at some point. Uh, I, I, I managed to avoid watching it. I survived on clips. Right. That was one of my favourite moments as Pete was uh, with a straight face, uh, Peter Carl coming out and saying that he'd set back the cause of dyslexia five to ten years. <laughs> <laughs> by, by associating <laughs> dyslexia with uh, failure. And, uh, oh, wow. Yes. Uh, and yeah, so some... Um, some speculate one of the reasons why he went on on a celeb partly to you know rebuild his image but also to promote his book yes um the pandemic diaries even which though it's not a diary it's not a diary it is a, 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 a telling of events in the sort of vague layout based on of, his original diaries i think is it yeah i mean based on his messages. emails yeah. and WhatsApps at the time, yes he says in the introduction that he couldn't keep a diary at the time because he was so busy and it would have been wrong of him to keep one being the one person who spotted this pandemic that no one yeah. else spot, spotted essentially well i mean i look forward to uh, the inquiry um going over the record with him next year under oath. So yeah, yeah, that's yep. going to be quite an interesting um, one. We we'll look forward to the book being read out to him. Yeah. And but I, it, it was not surprising to see him stand down after that show, was it? Because it was just so clear that he was launching his future broadcast career. And I think there is a sense amongst all these MPs that are standing down, particularly young ones. That Look, he just fell in love, Laura. They, they've he given just up. fell in love. That was, <laughs> no. he just fell in love. Well, in all seriousness, if you go well. on TikTok and look at the comments he gets on his videos versus on Twitter, yeah. it's worlds apart. There's right. a certain, he's a bit of a meme. He, I can see the kind of Michael Portillo transition yeah. from cabinet member, one point ran for leader, instead going to be yeah, coming soon to a light entertainment show near uh, you. And why not? Because <laughs> if, you know, if the polls are true, it, MPs like him are thinking, all right, well, do I want to spend time in opposition or what other career could I have? And, and because he can clearly see that he's got this public popularity and mm. he could become a pundit, that's the choice he's made. Yeah, and that's the kind of the, the, the thing, uh, the difference, I suppose, between the, the different groups in the party, the Conservative Party, which is sort of splitting open. Ellie and I had a lovely chat with Robert Buckland, the former um, Justice Secretary for another podcast. And he was sort of, he's on the other camp. He's very much like, no, no, we need to just like get stick together. And we need to realise that Labour are going to be in power and we don't want to be in opposition. Opposition's awful. But there is that kind of break between those ones who think, oh, you know, maybe actually things are winding down, essentially. And it, I suppose that's the big thing for next year is which side is going to win out in those two in those two elements. Yeah, exactly. Because I think people forget that we are effectively less than 18 months away from an election if they follow the pattern of having a May election. They mm. can wait until like December 2024 and push it to 2025. But... Let, let's hope they don't do that because I don't want a winter election. But, you know, we've, we've not got long. They've not got long to turn things round. Labour are 20 points ahead and they've been in power for quite a while. So it's not looking great and it does look like opposition might be on the horizon. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a cost of living crisis. Inflation's going up. We've just had yeah. an announcement from the Bank of England that mortgage rates are going to go up. I, I, we'll mention again, there are nurses striking outside. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult for them to turn it around it, next year. I think. Yeah, I agree. I, I think one prediction I'll maybe foolishly make is that perhaps we'll probably see less chaos than this year. In that. Right, so that's, that's my final question to you was actually going to be, if we're doing this podcast this time next year, you know, those 10 moments, they're going to be quite The different. year of four prime ministers, yeah. Well, well yeah, exactly. You know, what, what do you think? What do well, you think we're going to be talking about this time next because year? Because Starmer and Sunak have put a premium on competence and basic managerialism. Delivery, right? Delivery, yeah, yeah exactly. So I think probably less the rhetoric of sort of 
Johnson and Truss, a bit less, less less rhetoric and more kind of focus on delivery. And that's one that's kind of the, the pack they've both made each other. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of clearly water opens up between them. Labour got a good holding line for now. On we're not going to go in like details about pay negotiations. We're going to have you know um, put, we'll do um, non doms to raise a bit of money. But ultimately, there's not that much in the policy differences now. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of dividing lines open up in the next year. That's all we've got time for, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day-a-week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my guests, Eleanor Langford, Laura Silver and James Heal. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. Look out for next week when we'll be taking a look at what's coming up in 2023 and trying to answer the big questions about the next year in politics. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.